sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinock. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. This is going to be part two of a wonderful discussion I've been having about natural law with my friend and colleague, Greg Hamilton, who serves as president of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association. Greg, welcome back. Thanks. So we've been talking about natural law, and for those who may have missed part one, if you could briefly introduce these two concepts of a literal and a more enlightenment approach to natural law. Well, there's a natural moral order of things, which is seen in the physical order of things, uh, gravity, uh, you know, something that goes up must come down, wind, uh, you know, um, the waves or movement of light, uh, you can see it lightning. There's just a natural moral order of things that atheists are want to explain. They tend to write it off, and it's not something they want to admit to, but to the average common person, they all agree universally that we all have a moral conscience, we have moral reasoning, and the big question is how should that be reflected in society and uh, through laws and so forth. And so that's always been the debate from the time of Plato, Aristotle, uh, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, John Locke, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Benjamin Franklin. I mean, we could go on and on, but there's this raging debate, basically, that divides fundamentalists and liberals over how to interpret law, how to uh, apply law in society and to an individual or as a as, as a collective society. You know, is there room for both? Is there room for the individual, or must everything be determined? on the basis of what's good for society, what's good for the whole, or are there exceptions to individuals and individual moral conscience? How far do you take um, a literal application of the law, uh, especially when you're talking about divine law or the Ten Commandments? I mean, how far does government go? Well, one of the problems that I've always seen with the literal approach, and really I suppose it it applies across the board, is the question of who gets to decide, right? Yeah. So if, if even if you have this shared understanding and you say, okay, we're going to take a literal approach to moral law, and we believe as a society that our law should reflect the moral absolutes. Well, reasonable people still differ as to understanding what those moral absolutes are in our nation today, right? Yeah. But it boils down to really, you know, do people, how do they view human nature? Is human nature, are humans inherently good or are they inherently evil? And that really is another factor we haven't discussed that we could discuss. But I don't want to discuss that at length. But just to say that um, out of the whole idea that man is inherently good uh, proposes all kinds of evils, uh, believe it or not. It's just the opposite of what you think. And those who believe that man is naturally evil. Um, basically is the approach that actually allows for individual rights and a nuance in, in terms of motive and moral reasoning, whereas 
the idea that mankind is good is basically the approach of communism or socialism. The whole idea that uh, uh, man is inherently good, um, but nevertheless, you know, uh, dictators rise up and they somehow squash that understanding. Whereas a system that sees mankind as inherently evil, they allow for competition. They allow for uh, free exchange of ideas in the free market of ideas, the free marketplace. Um, it allows for that competitive understanding. In other words, it allows for a regulated chaos, if you will. <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous. You know, no, I think you're onto something, and that's a new thought for me. Where my mind is going with this topic is to contrast the evangelical Protestant and Roman Catholic views of natural law. Um, because, of course, America, our founding, was influenced by a combination of evangelical Protestantism and uh, the Enlightenment, and the product was a strong emphasis on the rights of the individual and individual conscience. And that was really revolutionary, wasn't it? Well, yes, but even Catholics are divided on that. Protestants are divided on that. You have the same fundamentalist versus liberal divide in both Protestantism and Catholicism. It's really interesting to behold and watch. You certainly do today. I agree. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. you know, historically, Catholicism, I think, certainly, you know, before the American Revolution and the many centuries before, well, the predominant strain was that the church is the arbiter of truth and that government exists to uphold the truth as understood and taught by the church. And so law... Well, you know, it's... Am I wrong? Well, yeah, it's funny you should say that, because if you go back to Thomas Aquinas, he was barely tolerated. I mean, you know, even Augustine, I mean, you look at the church fathers in the Catholic Church, and they were heavy-duty intellectuals. Intellectualism was very much frowned upon uh, during the Dark Ages. Um, Literally, you had to go by whatever the Pope said, or bishops or cardinals, and anybody who was a thinker, uh, you know, was heavily frowned upon. So I don't know. There's always that divide that's existed. But yeah, generally speaking, there's there's the dolts who uh, follow whatever the emperor or the king or the pope says, and then there's the people who are the liberal enlightenment thinkers that tend to try to uh, uh, provide more nuance in understanding. And so I, I would say the divide has been there all along. I just think that you know, it took a long time for the people to uh, reach an educated state on their own, which America allows for, obviously. So that, yeah, I would say that's more of a modern thing. But nevertheless, it existed even back then. Well, okay, but the revolution that was the Protestant Reformation um, put the emphasis on a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ through faith. Correct. And that, because of, you know, that was a shift away from, yes. um, and really laid the foundation for individual rights. Yep, that was liberal and revolutionary. And for the respect that we have had within our Constitution and laws in America for, for individual freedoms. Yes, absolutely. And it comes back to this, how do you interpret natural law? Do we go down this road of literalism, or do we go down this road of um, of individual understanding and moral reasoning. There's a collective approach and there's an individual approach and there's room for both. And that's seen in our Constitution, whereas a Constitution itself, we have we the people uh, as its preamble, which means it's a collective order. We have a collective establishment of things uh, with three branches of government, which is outlined in the Constitution. Then you have the Bill of Rights, 
which represents individual rights, which represents that more liberal moral reasoning uh, that says, hey, wait a minute, here's some exceptions. Here's where government shouldn't go. And, uh, you know, otherwise it's oppression and we can't have that. So collectivism meets individualism. And we have a perfect balance in both in our constitutional system. So, you know, it's, it's amazing when you look at the Constitution, the United States Constitution, how it could be. Sure, there are flaws, mind you. It's, it's not perfect. Franklin said that. But uh, clearly, it's a masterpiece. I mean, it is just a masterpiece. It is. And, yeah, it really is. And so when, when you look at how the law is interpreted, however, you have two groups of thinkers, especially when it comes to jurisprudence, when it comes to the courts. You know, you have those who believe in the literal fundamentalist original intent. What were the founders' intent? You know, we must stick to that. And then there are those who, uh, in their view of natural law, basically say, you know, their worldview, which affects their view of natural law, basically says, no, there's a nuanced approach to this. There's a living, breathing constitution, a constitution that's so ingenious that it adapts itself to every needed change for justice in society uh, on down the ages. And so, in other words, it actually, in my opinion, the living, breathing approach uh, actually allows for the original Constitution to maintain itself intact. Uh, there may be changing definitions to meet the demands of the day, the demands for social justice of the day, whereas the original intent doesn't do that. I mean, it would still apply the original three-fifths of a person clause regarding apportionment and slavery in the Constitution. <laughs> I mean, if push came to shove, they'd probably even go that far. Now, obviously, they don't go that far right now, but that's because the Civil War solved that. But there's a lot of people in the legal arena that believe even the uh, Civil War amendments are not right, especially the 14th Amendment. They love to do away with it. Sure. And that's, that's a deeper subject for some other time. Well, since you bring up original intent, um, I'll, I'll just chime in that um, uh, my problem with the current uh, way that original intent is understood and applied is not with the concept of original intent, but with the distortion of it. So, for example, with the religion clauses, and this is a show where we deal with religious freedom, um, what passes for original intent is not at all uh, faithful to the history, as you and I both know. It's a gross distortion. Yeah, they make up their own history. Exactly. Yeah. Um, my, my introduction to this, when I was an undergraduate, uh, I was offered an opportunity to do an honors thesis as a senior and uh, was uh, prompted to study the Supreme Court's use of history in a case involving Sunday closing laws. Mm. And there was 100 pages of really bad history in those decisions yeah. that was designed to lead to a particular conclusion. So, that, that, you know, you, you decide how you want to decide the case, and then you kind of uh, uh, pigeonhole the history to tell the story you want to tell to come to the conclusion that you've already made up your mind about. And, and that's too often how the Supreme Court does original intent. So, you know, I do think that understanding what our founding fathers had in mind is helpful. But if you take it too far, 
you know, uh, you get to arguments like, well, if the Second Amendment guaranteed people the right to have their own guns, well, it guaranteed them the right to have the type of guns that people had 200 and some years ago, uh, which were muskets. <laughs> and so it didn't guarantee them the right to have machine guns or, you know, uh, well, you know, I mean, that sounds silly, right? You're laughing and it, it kind of goes too far. But I, oh, I think it's funny. I think it's great. Yeah a great example. I, mean, I just think it, it, it shows, you know, you, you got to be careful with, with how you apply these concepts, right? Yeah, well, you know, the, the whole idea regarding uh, natural law is there's these people who believe that the nation was founded by our founders as a Christian nation by law, literal Christian nation by law. But where is that? I don't see that in any of the Constitutional Convention debates. I don't see that in any of the ratification uh, debates of the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. I don't see that anywhere. Um, that was not their purpose. No, it's fantasy. Yeah, it really is. But that's it's myth. That's what they're trying to bend uh, the Constitution to mean. And and one of the famous debates that goes on among those original intentists is the idea that the founders only intended to prevent the establishment of a national church. And that's all the establishment or non-establishment clause means in the First Amendment. And the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So they interpret that to mean only a national religion. Which is completely false, and we've got to leave it there. Uh, we could keep going for show number three, number four, number five. Yep. This has been a lot of fun. Our guest today, Greg Hamilton, president of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association, two-part series on natural law. As we close, remember, friends, even the coronavirus won't slow down our efforts to protect your religious freedom. We don't just talk about it. We provide legal services to those suffering religious discrimination, especially workers. So check us out at churchstate.org, www.churchstate.org. And be sure to listen to Freedom's Ring on our SoundCloud radio station or on iTunes. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Rhinoff. Until next week, friends, keep freedom ringing. <laughs>